Well, it is good to be back with y'all. Um, I love your preacher. Josh and Casey are amazing people. They're actually letting me and my family, uh, four of our five kids and my parents are staying at their house right now. So don't go over to the house because it's going to feel like Chuck E. Cheese at rush hour if you go over there um, um, the next day or so. I love this church. I feel like y'all are kind of a sister church to us in um, Abilene and what we're trying to do together as we partner with God in the restoration of all things. Let's start off with a prayer. God, thank you for the kingdom of God outpost that is this church. I pray that you would continue to use them as a way of showing the world what you're like, what your heart is, and the things you care about. God, may we have this sense of a broader fellowship this morning as our two churches in some mysterious way are are partnering together um, this morning, but really in lots of ways as we partner with you, um, as we pray and then work for your kingdom to happen on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, when I was a kid, I loved Superman. I loved Superman so, so much. I uh, had the Superman pajama set. The only problem with the pajama set is that they didn't have the underwear on the outside the way that the actual Christopher Reeve Superman had it. So I got my Superman underwear and I would put it on over my pajamas. I had a cape that I would tie on over it and... um, I also had one Sunday go-to-church suit, and I would put that suit on over the pajamas. Um, I, I was a, I was a festively plump is how I would describe my childhood, hefty. I was a larger, short kid. So basically, my nickname was short, a Circle, if that gives you any idea of my body style growing up. And I had these really thick Coke bottle lens glasses. I was the kind of kid who, um, you know, other, other kids would ask their mom, why is his head always down? And they'd say, well, that's the weight of the lenses, honey. You know, I could, I could light things on fire just by staring at them with the sun beside me, behind me. Um, but what I would do is I would put on my Superman uniform, then I would put on my Clark Kent suit, and I would put on my glasses, and then I would go out in the backyard, and I would go behind a tree, and on one side of the tree, I would be Clark Kent. And then I'd go behind the tree, and then in my mind, in super speed, I would turn in to Superman, and then I would fly all around the backyard. And at one point, I guess my parents uh, saw me doing this, and my mom tells me, because I just watched the Superman movie with Christopher Reeve so many times, hundreds of times. My mom tells me, Jonathan, I think you need to stop watching that. I'm concerned that you're making Superman an idol. And I was like, Mom, I'm in college now. I can do whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) Today I want to talk about idolatry, and I want to talk about all the ways that we are guilty of idolatry and why it should bother you more than it does. The sermon today is called Christians Make the Best Atheists, and I'm not trying to be cute with that title. Do you know that your brothers and sisters who have gone before you for the first couple of hundred years, the primary thing that Christians were known as on the outside of Christianity was atheists? Because they didn't worship the Greco-Roman gods. So this is a series that I did at Highland. I just finished it. And when I was going uh, to prepare for this, I went off to study break for a while. I was on a plane, and I was halfway through this book, Bad Religion, by Ross Dutat. And I went to the bathroom on this plane, and I come back. And um, the guy next to me, my seatmate, who I had not talked to at all during this flight, is reading the book that I had left on the seat. And when I get back, he goes, what are you doing reading this? And I say, what are you doing reading this? 
And I tell him, I'm doing this series, Christians Make the Best Atheist. And I start to tell him what I'm about to tell you, what I mean when I say that. And at one point he goes, are you going to be able to say that and not get fired? And I'm like, I don't know, we'll see. Well, good news is I did. I was able to say it and not get fired so far. But the reason I'm telling you this is because my heart is in the Southeast. I'm from Arkansas. I care so much about church in the Southeast. And I want y'all to hear this. It's a little bit of a risk, but I believe in it enough. I believe in you. I believe in this kind of church that you can hear this well because of the leadership that y'all have, because of the kind of church you are, and because of the stuff you care about. I care enough to say what I'm about to say to you. Here's what I mean when I say Christians make the best atheists. A few weeks after 9-11, something happened that not very many people were aware of, but everybody in this room has been affected by. Because just a few days after 9-11, a neuroscientist named Sam Harris began to sit down and write a book called The End of Faith. And it was a book that was a critique against all religion, not just Islam, against all religion. And it took Sam Harris, he, he got denied like 40-something times by different publishers because no one wanted to touch it. Because right after 9-11, you may or may not remember this, there was a surge in all things religious for a couple of weeks. Churches were packed, synagogues were packed. But then it kind of plateaued off. But nobody wanted to touch a critique against religion until finally one publisher took a chance and that book spent 32 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Later on that year, a guy named Richard Dawkins wrote another book called The God Delusion. And in the beginning of the book, he said, if this book functions the way I intend for it to, then people who are religious at the beginning of this book, by the time they set this book down, will be atheists. And that book sold millions of copies in over 35 different languages. The very next year, Christopher Hitchens came out with a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And this was not a critique of Islam. Again, this was a critique of all things religious. And these guys were rock stars. They were on college campuses. They were on late night talk shows. And again, their critique wasn't even just to try to get you to become atheist. Their main point was that religion is toxic. That religion is a, a bad force in the world. And by all metrics, they've been very successful. Not in getting people to become atheists. There's, there's not really been a big uptick in people becoming atheists. But what they've been very successful at is the rise of that idea that religion is a really bad thing that we should rid ourselves of in the world. And by all metrics, they've been very successful because over the last 15 years, there's been this phenomenon called the rise of the nuns. And it matters how you spell that, obviously. It means people who are not affiliated with any religion. They're one of the largest demographics in America. And they're mostly white, they're mostly millennial, and they're mostly male. But they're about 23% of the U.S. population. They're uh, mostly left-leaning politically. And they wouldn't say that they um, are hostile towards religion. They don't want to get an argument about religion. They just don't want to have anything to do with religion. They don't, they don't want to argue with you about it. And part of it is, they're just not interested in anymore. And so, this is a sermon that started because of that. Because I have friends who are in that category. I bet you have friends who are in that category. I have people that I love and who love me who are in that category. And when I asked them why they walked away from God, church, faith, religion, whatever... When I ask them why they deconverted, so many of them tell me a story. Sometimes it's about like an idea that they had or a class that they took or a book that they read or a tragedy that they went through. But when all of them describe the reason they are walking away from faith in God and Jesus, almost never does it have anything to do with actual Christianity. 
In fact, most of the times that they have described why they're walking away from faith, I want to say, wait, 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 wait. That's not what Jesus is about. That was never what Jesus, that's never what Christianity was. In fact, the very things that you find so offensive, the first Christians would have never been involved in. They would have found it incredibly disturbing. And, and here's the thing, what you are walking away from, or what you're walking towards, may be actually the very thing you think you're walking away from. Because turning away from something is always turning towards something else. And unaware... I'm convinced that a lot of us, as we take a step away from faith in God and Jesus, and whatever degree that looks like, for some of us that's just maybe uh, our, our devotion to the community of faith is beginning to slip or whatever. But as we are turning away from that, we are turning towards something else because you cannot turn away from something without moving towards something else. And the things that people really hate about religion, I mean really hate about religion, I'm convinced we are not so much turning away from as we are turning towards. Let me explain. When God first created the people of God, when he delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he goes to Moses and he says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, who am I to say, who, who sent me? He said, well, tell him it's, it's a, the God of, of everything. So he goes to Pharaoh and he says, I am says you should let his people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know who that is. And so God gives a crash course to Pharaoh in who God is. Pharaoh uh, said he was, you know, basically the son of God. He was a God on earth. And to that end, Pharaoh had what is called the nine bows to maintain mayot. Let me hear you say mayot. Mayot was balance. And in a, a world that revolved around the Nile, you can imagine how important Mayot balance was because if the Nile goes up, everybody dies. If the Nile goes down, everybody dies. And so Pharaoh's job as God, as the leader of Egypt, was to uh, keep Mayot. And he had these nine bows, the powers that kind of served Pharaoh. And what God does in the Exodus story is break one at a time Pharaoh's bows. One of those bows was frogs. One of those bows was not livestock. One of those bows was the sun. One of those bows was the Nile. And every one of the ten plagues is God breaking the bow of Pharaoh. And then the final one is God breaking Pharaoh's dynasty itself. Kind of like introducing Pharaoh to who God is. God is breaking systematically the little G gods that had enslaved the Israelites. And then after God delivers the Israelites, um, he, uh, after like a 40-year timeout, God eventually delivers them into the promised land. And now Joshua is the leader. And before Joshua takes them into the promised land, Joshua stops and has this famous conversation with them where he says this in Joshua chapter 24, starting with verse 14. Joshua says to these people, before you go into the promised land, you've got to pick. Now he says, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I think it's so fascinating that Joshua, as a preacher, stands up and gives three options for the invitation. I would never do that. At the end of this, you know, I wouldn't be like, now if you would like to, you know, come forward and, and believe in Jesus or on this side, Marduk, you could come over here. You know, no, he gives them three options 
for what to believe. Because here's what Joshua knows. The kingdom of God cannot be forced on anybody. It is a way of life that must be chosen at expense of all other lives. It's a path that must be chosen at the expense of all other paths. And he shows them the choice they must make. He says, basically, you've got the old gods, you've got the new gods, or you can choose the God who made everything. How many of you grew up hearing that as a, a kind of um, cute little saying that we put on porcelain plates and put in our kitchen? You know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No, what, what that saying is, and we will not serve those other gods. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Joshua is listing out the circumstances of life that those gods came at these people. You can, show, you can serve the old gods. You can serve the new gods. You can serve the ones that are right around here. But Joshua never mentions you cannot serve. It, that's not an option for Joshua. And here's why it's interesting. Because those gods came at those people from their circumstances in life just the way your gods come at you. Because here's what I believe, and I believe this sincerely. I don't think the principalities and powers have left. I think they've just rebranded. And you get rebranding, right? I mean, the world we live in, we, re- we see people rebrand all the time. You know Best Buy used to be known as Sound of Music? You know Subway used to be Pete's Sandwich Shop? You know Best Buy used to be, ba- or Google used to be Backrub? Till somebody was like, hey, let's, uh, let's go with a less creepy sounding name maybe? But we get rebranding, and that, I think, is what these principalities and powers have done. And they just come at us the same way through the circumstances in life, which is why Joshua says to these people, you've got to choose. And he never gives the option of, not cho- of choosing nothing. Because all of us are worshipers. It's ingrained in us. There's this one uh, philosopher named Peter Kraft who says, the opposite of theism is not atheism. The opposite of theism is idolatry. We were all built to bow. And idolatry is something that the Bible condemns from Genesis to Revelation. So, you know, in the day that Genesis was written, it was not arguing with Charles Darwin. In the day Genesis was written, it was incredibly controversial and provocative, but not because it, was, it had like 18th century scientific theories in its view. The day it was written, it was incredibly provocative because of what it said in Genesis chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 14. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, And God said, Let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let, the, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. Go to the next slide. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning. Here's why this is so controversial in its day. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear this in a day when everybody worshipped, guess what? The sun. The moon. All these different cultures around there. They worship the vegetation. They worship the the sun, the moon, the stars. And in this, Genesis 1 drops like a, a bomb. It says, no, no, no. You don't worship those things. God made all those things. Only God is worthy of being worshipped. That is the major message of the Bible. The creator God made all things. And uh, only that God is worthy of our worship. No one else. But not just that. That God puts God's image on people. And that term in Genesis 1, when it says God puts his image on us, everywhere else in the Bible, that word image, you know what it's, it's translated as? Idol. God does have an idol. 
And it's you. It's your brother and sister. It's the people around you. God's only place to put his image is on the people around us. This is why the prophets, when they talk about idolatry, they talk about injustice as the same thing, the flip side of the same coin. Because whenever you worship idols, chances are you will see ways that you participate in injustice on other people. And idols can be anything. Notice what one prophet, a guy named Ezekiel, says in Ezekiel chapter 14, if you could put that up. Therefore, speak to them and say, this is what the Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up an idol in their hearts and put up a wicked stumbling block before their faces, whenever, watch what it says, whenever uh, one of these people put up an idol in their hearts. Look, here's what Ezekiel's saying. It doesn't have to be statues. You don't have to be in a temple. You don't have to bow down before your checkbook to know that you're worshiping your money. It's in your heart. Anything can be an idol. And by the way, it's almost never bad things. It's always good things that we try to make ultimate things. That we say, if I can't have that, I will, my life isn't worth living. It's things that you move to having ultimate significance in your life. That you say, I, I don't want to live if I can't have that. And when you do that, when idols have your worship... They will always crush you. You will ask for things that they cannot give you. In fact, if you want to know your idols, here's a few litmus tests. Chase your misery. What's making you miserable? What's making you really anxious? What keeps you up at night? What's the first thing you wake up thinking about in the morning? Those are good litmus tests for, uh, for idolatry. And it's why the prophets are always against them. Because they realize it leads to heartache and pain. And like what we heard today in, in the communion in Psalms 115. When you have idolatry, you can't hear God. You can't see God. Because, and this is why Jesus alludes to it so often. When he talks about they, they have ears to hear but they can't hear. They have eyes to see. God is right in front of them and they can't see God because of their idolatry. And so throughout the Bible, the people of God would wake up and they would realize we're worshiping other gods. And they would, you know, clear the stage. They would wreck shop. They would destroy that. So much so that we just found this last year. King Hezekiah, in King Hezekiah's uh, kind of reform, one of the things he did, put this picture up. We just found this in Israel last year. Not me, but people who do archaeology just found this. You know what that is? It's a toilet. You want to know where they found it? Over one of the old idols. How great is that? This is how seriously they took this. They wanted to make sure people know we don't worship this anymore. And that's also where you can go to the bathroom. So it's a really interesting thing that they did. And you would do this stuff too if you realized what it was. Because God is not against idolatry because it's a bad idea or because God is needy. God's against this for the same reason you'd be against it if you realized how horrible it is for, for us. Look at what Jeremiah, one of the prophets who, talk, who rails against idolatry, says about it. In Jeremiah chapter 19, it says, For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. Well, what happens when you do that? They have burned incense to, it, to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as an offering to Baal. Something I did not command and it never even entered my mind. Because that's one thing that idolatry leads to. Sacrifice. And it sounds so primitive, but come on. I see child sacrifice all the time. We don't do it to Baal. We do it to the God of freedom or the God of success or the God of love. And it may be socially acceptable. And by the way, idolatry almost always is socially acceptable in its day. 
But it's sacrifice all the, th- all the same. Every time you see an injustice, every time you see an addict torn apart, every time you see a family torn apart by lust or unforgiveness, you're watching the consequent side of idolatry. You're seeing what happens when somebody puts the weight of worship on other people. This is the entire witness of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it explains the entire New Testament, including all the letters of Paul. Because you know what Paul's doing? Paul is going into the Greco-Roman world, planting these churches in a place where they worshiped a million gods, and he's telling them, no, no, only God is worthy of worship. And it's why he writes these bizarre-sounding letters to us, right? Like in the book of Romans, he's writing to the Jews, it's got Jews and Gentile Christians in Romans, and he's writing to them, reminding them of their idolatry to the Jews. He writes, you are, you're religious idol. You have religious idolatry. You can't keep the law. To the Gentiles, he talks about all the idolatry that they have, um, the kind of pagan ones, trying to get them out of it. And then he ends it by saying, or all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not going to get where you're wanting to go by chasing this path, right? And that's what Paul's doing in Romans. It's an it's a, um, a exposition against idolatry in lots of ways. Well, how about this? Did you know that prostitution was everywhere in the Greco-Roman world? I mean, it was everywhere. But the only place Paul explicitly condemns or even really mentions it is in Corinth, Corinthians. You want to know why? Because Corinth is where the temple of Aphrodite was. That's where she was serviced, this God of love was serviced by over a thousand temple prostitutes. And in Corinthians, Paul writes, no, no, if you're in Jesus, you don't participate in that. We don't view reality that way. We definitely don't think that we can worship God with our our, um, sexuality like that. We wouldn't participate in that because then you're actually participating in what he says, the uh, feast of demons. Um, Does this make the Bible come alive for you now? I mean, honestly, every New Testament letter, I think, is written with this in the backdrop of it. So, for example, like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's this passage that maybe some of y'all have heard before where Paul says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Like, thanks, Paul. What do you do with that? Well, does it make a difference if you find out? And you can Google this right now. He's writing to Timothy who planted a church in Ephesus, right? Ephesus is the temple of the great goddess, anybody know? Artemis. You can Google this right now. Artemis was known for keeping women safe during childbearing. And Paul is writing to the church there saying, no, 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 basically, Artemis doesn't do that. Jesus can do that. From beginning to end, that's what the Bible is about. In fact, so much that the earliest New Testament letter that we have, 1 Thessalonians, In chapter 1, at the very beginning of the very first thing, just a a couple of decades after Jesus had risen from the dead, Paul actually writes this to the very first Christians. He says, starting in verse uh, 8, the Lord's message of chapter 1, the Lord's message rang out not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to even say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us, watch this, of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. There's one theologian, a guy named David Bentley Hart, who thinks that what Paul is actually referring to here is what had just developed in the first Christians in their baptism ritual. Because did you know that for the first few hundred years, not just anybody could be a Christian? If you wanted to be a Christian, you had to watch for a couple of years to make sure the way of Jesus was for you. 
You had to watch to make sure you were ready to renounce the idols in your life. And if you were, then you would on Easter Eve at midnight, you would take off all your clothes as if you were going back to the Garden of Eden. And you would descend into the baptistry and then you would turn and face the west. The west. The temples of the pagan gods. And you would spit. And you would renounce them and the devil. And then you would turn and face the east and you would pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. And then you would be baptized. And when you rose from your baptism, you would be known to the rest of the world by a new name. Atheist. Because you didn't worship those gods. Today, if you ask any person on the street, do you believe in God, you'll get one of three answers. Yes, no, or maybe. But you will never hear, which God? Because that is a very Christian gift that has been given to this world. That we don't believe in those other gods, right? Or at least we think we don't believe in those other gods. And that is a very Christian thing. Because historically speaking, that's a strange phenomenon. That you wouldn't ask, which God? Okay, so the reason I want to preach this sermon is not because so many of us have become atheists. We all probably know some people who have, but the truth is, it's not, there's not been a huge uptick in that. It, the reason I want to preach this sermon is because as we step away from faith in Jesus, we are always stepping towards something else. You cannot move to, away from something without moving towards something else. Earlier this year in the New York Times, there was an article called, um, Don't Believe in God? Maybe you'll believe in UFOs. And it talked about how people who don't go to church, who don't have faith in God, are more likely to believe unsubstantiated stuff about UFOs. They're more likely to believe things about fairies. Um, they're more likely to go to fortune tellers, all those kind of things. And that's been true. And the, the research that I've done, and a lot of people have done, it's true that you can't turn this religious part of your brain off. People are going to believe in strange things no matter what they are. But that's not our biggest problem, is it? The biggest problem we're facing is not that more and more people are like believing in UFOs or whatever. It's actually a much bigger problem than that. The real problem facing us is that for the longest time in America, there's been this idea that what was making people intolerant was religion. I have good news for you. After 15 years and the rise of the nuns, we've got some pretty hard data coming back telling us that's not true. The Atlantic, which is a left-leaning magazine I like to read, um, earlier this year it had an article called America's Empty Church Problem. It's interesting because in the Atlantic, you know, for years you wouldn't have thought that America's empty churches were a problem. You would have thought they were the solution. But in the Atlantic, this article says, we've realized, look at this, the, the idea that secularism would make people more tolerant was naive. Secularism is indeed correlated with great tolerance of gay marriage and pot legalization, but it's also making Americans' partisan clashes more brutal, and it has contributed to the so-called alt-right movement, whose members see themselves as proponents of white nationalism. And as Americans have left organized religion, they haven't stopped viewing politics as a struggle between us and them. Many have come to define us and them in more primal and irreconcilable ways. The article goes on to say that people who have left church are more likely to be anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, racist, and nationalist. It goes on to say that the alt-right loves Christendom, which is an old-fashioned word which means the West, but it hates Christianity. You want to know why? The Atlantic says it's because Christianity refuses to place a premium on blood and soil and race. And here's why. I know this sounds so edgy what I'm saying right now, right? I would never have said it. 
unless 2,000 years ago, the first Christians turned and faced the West and spit. You want to know one of the gods they spit against? Athena. You want to know who Athena was? The god of Athens. The god of us. The God of my people are better than your people. That's why Paul on Mars Hill stands up and says, God made all people from all nations with the Parthenon, the temple of Athens, right in his shadow. Do you realize what was happening then? The first Christians were being invited for the first time in human history. They were being invited into a movement that said, no, no, God doesn't choose one group of people over the other. God's not like that. In fact, God calls you not to believe in any God like that. Athena was worshipped by thinking your people were better than other people. And the first Christians turned and spit against that God. And we are called to do the same today. See, here's the thing. Without considering it, as we take a step away from faith in God, Jesus, church, as we do that, we're also taking a step towards other things that they may be true, but they're very uncomfortable. And I just want you to get to know what those things are. For example, things like this. If there is no God, there is no such thing as justice. There may be what you consider justice. But who, it's not my justice. And who are you to tell me what justice should be? If there is no God, there's either brute strength and either you have it or you don't have it. In fact, there's no, if there's no God, there's no good reason for the strong not to oppress the weak. In fact, there's actually some compelling reasons why the strong should. And we're seeing some of those reasons make a comeback today. Here's the thing the first Christians know that we have forgotten. You can't not worship. My uh, kids, earlier this year, we were outside eating in our backyard. It was in a blood moon, and we were just looking up at it, eating dinner. And um, we tell them that people used to worship the moon. And um, Samuel, our seven-year-old, goes, well, that's dumb. And so our nine-year-old, Eden, starts thinking about it real thoughtfully. She says, you know what? Humans are kind of like minions. They got to serve somebody, you know? There's a little theology from Despicable Me for you. Or in the words of the one great theologian, um, Bob Dylan, you've got to serve something. You've got to serve somebody. David Foster Wallace, who was an agnostic, maybe even atheist, a great acclaimed American author, a few months before he committed suicide, gave a speech at Kenyon College where this guy, as an atheist, which makes it all the more powerful, actually said this. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money or things, if that's where you get real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure. You'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart you'll end up feeling stupid a fraud always on the verge of being found out but the insidious things about these forms of worship is their unconscious their default settings we are absolutely dying to give ourselves away foster wallace says and we do it every day of our lives see the ancient people weren't crazy to have a god for sex and a god for work and a god for money they weren't crazy for that because anything can be a god and in fact, I've seen it be a God in my ministerial experience. I've seen it be a God in almost every, in 
every one of those be a God in someone's life. And it always, it makes promises it can't keep. And it leaves a trail of destruction in its wake. Always. And that's why for those of us who are considering walking away from faith in Jesus or who are in relationship with people who are walking away from faith in Jesus, they need to have, they need to remember this. Today's atheists often are noble. Because, listen, if you believe in the wrong God, atheism is a step towards true faith. The first Christians were known as atheists, and that was not a miscalculation. Because they refused to worship those gods. The first Christians, they were poor peasants, and they would share their money with each other. You want to know why? Because they didn't worship the God of money, the God of marketplace. The, the first Christians, they didn't worship the God of family. There was a God for that. They didn't worship the God of sexuality. There was a God for that. And because of that, you want to know what happened? People who were single came to Christian gatherings in droves. Women, for the first time in human history, were not, they did not have to be known by their relationship to a man. And women came in droves. They attracted those kinds of people. They, they, the first Christians, they stood up against the gladiator games and they stood up against infanticide because they didn't worship the gods of war or status. They loved and forgave each other their sins because as much as they cared about justice, they did not worship justice. The first Christians were revolutionaries. In fact, there has not been another revolution since. But they were not just creative revolutionaries. They were also destroyers. And we should praise them as much for the second as the first. Because there are many things that are worthy of destruction. When I was in Greece, I went with Luke Norsworthy to Athens to get ready for this series. And while I was in Greece, we saw this in the Athens Museum. It's a picture of Aphrodite. And sometime in the second century AD, before Constantine took over, I don't know if you can see that, but on, the, on her forehead... Sometime in the second century, some brave Christian walked up to this statue that they would have been terrified of. Everybody would have been afraid that Aphrodite was going to get you. And this brave Christian woman walked up to Aphrodite and chiseled a cross in her forehead. And I loved it. In a world where people were terrified of that. A world where she had seen how much worshiping Aphrodite had hurt people probably had hurt her, she walked up and carved a cross in this God's forehead because this God isn't worthy of your worship. It never has been and it never will be. Let's not dress this up. This is not detached cynicism. This is the kind of skepticism that has Christians in North Korea today in jail dying because they refuse to worship the emperor. It's the kind of criticism, skepticism that saw the first Christians thrown to lions if you want to be an atheist, a really good atheist, I know how. When Christians were known as atheists, that was not an accidental statement. It was because all true skepticism has got to come from a place of faith. It has got to come from a place of knowing what is ultimate and what isn't. You've got to have some kind of platform to say, this is the most important thing. And here's the thing. If you make that something else, it will eat you alive. If, if, you make that, um, if you make that your intelligence or your reasoning power, you'll always feel dumb. If you make it humanity, you'll always be disappointed with humans. If you make it pleasure, you'll always find pain. But the early Christians found out that there was a God who made all of this. This God was love, but this God wasn't just love. This God was justice, but this God wasn't only justice. This God was all that and more. And since this God had created all that, None of that could be worshipped because only God is worthy of our worship. In your life today, Christian, 
Only God is worthy of your worship. Not your spouse, not your family, not your money, not your job. Nothing but God is worthy of worship. And if you can follow the first Christians in this, it will change your life. It will lead you to greater joy. It will lead you to being able to flourish and showing the world what God is like. The first Christians were known as atheists. But church, today we worship too many gods. Let's stand and worship the one true God together now.